0: We're in a series called Game Changer. It's a study of the life of Christ, and we're looking at His life through the eyes of people whose lives He changed in a dramatic way. And today we're going to look at 12 anxious men. Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, if you want to turn in your Bibles to there and hold that for just a few moments. The year was 1956, and Wilson Greatbatch was serving as an assistant professor in electrical engineering at the University of Buffalo. He was working on a prototype device for the company, Chronic Disease Research Institute, and this device was supposed to help measure heart rhythm. And in the process of building the device, he reached into a box, pulled out uh, a, a resistor that was a little bit different than what was probably called for. As a matter of fact, probably most engineers would say that was the wrong resistor, but nevertheless, he put that resistor in the prototype, and when it was all put together, it didn't work as it was supposed to, but rather it was emitting some kind of an electrical pulse that was very similar to a heartbeat. Now, I don't know if he was experimenting and and chose that particular resistor at random, or whether he really wanted to see how that reacted to it. But once it began to work, he wondered, he began to think, is there any way that this device might help people? And after more research and development, it wasn't long before he had what we call today a pacemaker, 1956, Wilson Great Batch. Some of you are here today, and you're alive because you have a pacemaker. The American Heart Association tells us a half million people every year have a pacemaker implanted in their bodies that keeps them alive. That resistor choice was a game-changing moment in history. As a matter of fact, um, Wilson Greatbatch went on to buy the rights to the lithium battery research, although nothing had been developed, and he then developed that into a battery that could be implanted in the pacemaker that would allow it to work for 10 years without having to be replaced. When he died in the year 2011, he had more than 325 patents in his name, but none greater than the one that changed the heart of humanity. When Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30, he chose 12 men to, to fill a unique role of leadership. Out of a nation full of potential leaders, he happened to pick men that most leaders would say were not a good fit. We know he didn't do it randomly, but he took these men that some would say were not fit for much of anything, and he transformed them into a band of brothers to do something miraculous and amazing in establishing the church. Eleven out of the twelve were transformed by their time with Jesus. They could have done a lot of things with their lives that would have been good, but they sacrificed themselves to change the hearts of humanity forever. In this building this morning... There will be approximately some 3,000 people today. And these of us who have gathered here, we 3,000 are here today, 2,000 years later, because what these men did in changing history, Jesus became their game changer. They, in turn, became a game changer in history. Who were these men that we call the disciples, or more appropriately, the apostles, or sometimes the twelve? Well, let me read to you from Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 12. And it says this, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and He spent the night praying to God. When morning came, He called His disciples to Him and chose twelve of them, whom He also designated apostles, Simon, whom He named Peter. His brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was also called the Zealot, Judas son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. The the list of the apostles is found four times in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. And it's important to note that some of these guys had more than one name. Simon, for instance, was named by Jesus Peter. That was his nickname. The name Peter means rock. You could say his nickname was Rocky. Judas, not the betrayer Judas. There was another Judas who was sometimes called Labius and sometimes called Thaddeus. Thaddeus is my favorite of that trio. Bartholomew is most likely Nathaniel that we meet in John chapter 1. And, of course, my all-time favorite of the apostles is Thomas. Thomas is an Aramaic name. He is also called Didymus, which is the equivalent in Greek. Both Thomas in the Aramaic, Didymus in the Greek, they both mean twin. Now, I've always been puzzled by that, the name that means twin. If Thomas, which means twin, was indeed a twin, then what did they name the other one? (laughs) You you know what I mean? I mean, if, if, if you're twin brothers and you get named twin... What do you name the second one? Ditto? You know, repeat? I mean, I, I don't know what his name was. E- either way, I, I like the name Thomas and happy to be stuck with it. I also find this interesting. It is likely that several of the apostles were related to one another, and some were also possibly related to Jesus. I mentioned last week that John and his brother James were likely cousins of Jesus on his mother's side, that their mother was Jesus' mother, Mary's sister. Uh, New Testament scholar Alfred Edersheim suggests that James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Thaddeus may also have been brothers, and they may also have been Jesus' cousins on the other side of the family, related through his earthly father Joseph. Judas Iscariot is the single apostle who was not faithful to Jesus until death. He seems to be an outsider. Judas is also the only apostle not from the region of Galilee. He was the only apostle from Judea. I don't know if that that makes any difference, but it is unique that he stands alone in several different ways. And you say, well, why 12? Well, perhaps it has something to do with the fact that 12 is a very significant number in the Bible. Uh, To name a few, there were 12 tribes who became the nation of Israel. There were 12 loaves of bread that were baked and put on the table inside the temple. There were 12 spies that went into the land of Canaan at the end of that 40 years of wandering through the wilderness as they got ready to take the land. There were 12 baskets of leftovers that were taken up after the feeding of the 5,000. In heaven, there are 12 gates There are 12 foundation stones in the walls of the city, and the tree of life produces 12 crops of fruit. 12 in Scripture is a significant number. I also believe that it is a practical number. 12 makes just the right size group. It's big enough to make a difference and have an impact, but it's not so big that it becomes unwieldy or unruly. It, working with a group of 12 people is really a good-sized group. Now, this passage is only five verses long, but it contains a game-changing moment in the life of Christ and an even greater game-changing moment in the lives of these 12 men. Unlike the famous screenplay and movie about a jury, 12 angry men, these are more likely 12 anxious men. What is this going to mean? How is this going to impact our life? What will my future be as a disciple of Jesus? We do know that they went from being 12 anxious men to 12 great leaders in the church and changed the world. Now, how did Jesus choose these men? Well, did you notice when we're reading through Luke that the first thing is that we know he spent the night in prayer. Now, if you had an important decision to make tomorrow and you said, what's your best advice on making this decision? Probably most of us in this room would say something like, well, go to bed early and get a good night's sleep because when when you get a good night's sleep, you're fresh in the morning, you'll make a better decision. Not a thing wrong with that advice. As a matter of fact, that's good advice. But Jesus didn't sleep the night. He prayed the night. This perhaps was the most critical decision of his earthly ministry. And he spent the entire night in prayer. We, we ought to learn something from that, that when we have critical decisions that we need to make, we ought to undergird it with prayer. Well, yeah, we ought to get some rest, but we ought to spend time in praying. doesn't mean you have to pray all night, but it does mean you need to pray. I, can't, I cannot imagine us wanting to make an important decision in our life without including God in that decision process. So, learn the lesson that Jesus teaches us And that is that when you have a major decision in your life, make sure it is on a foundation of prayer. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. And I know that when I pray like I'm supposed to, like I should, like I ought, it does change who I am. And notice this, that he chose ordinary people, not famous people, not powerful people. He chose ordinary people. By this time, Jesus had quite a following of men and women. Uh, they were called the disciples. A disciple is a learner, a follower, and an emulator of Jesus. We are his 21st century disciples. We are his followers. We are his learners. We are his emulators in this culture. And so there were a multitude of disciples at this time. But out of this group of disciples, he picks 12 to be his apostles. The word apostle means one cent. All right, it's very similar to our word missionary, one who we send to some other place around the country or some other place around the world with the message of Christ. It's very similar to our word ambassador. An ambassador is one who represents a nation in another nation's district and who conveys the message of one nation to another nation. That's exactly what the apostles did. They were ambassadors for Christ. And notice he didn't pick, as I mentioned, the rich or the powerful or the famous. Now, I don't think these guys were necessarily poor. Sometimes I think we have the idea that, that uh, all these apostles were just dirt poor. I don't think that. I think there was a mixture of people from different walks of society among the disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a thriving fishing business, which was one of the most important businesses in Jerusalem at that time, or I'm sorry, in Judea at that time. They, they were located around the Sea of Galilee uh, in, in that region. And, and they left their boats, and they left their nets, and they followed Jesus. But after the resurrection, they came back to their business. It was still intact. They had employees that kept it going. We, we know in Scripture that Peter probably lived in two different houses in two different places. One in Bethsaida, and one in Capernaum. Now, you, you can't be dirt poor and have two places to live. Peter also had a family. We know that. The, the Bible says that he, he, uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, I've always found it difficult to have a mother-in-law without having a wife, and so we know that he had a family, and so these guys weren't, they weren't dirt poor, but they weren't the rich and the famous and the powerful. And and inside this group of twelve, there was some major contrast. Um, Jesus asked Matthew to be one of His disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. And in that day and time, a tax collector was was viewed with, with great disgust by the rest of Jewish society because this was a Jewish person that decided to work for the dreaded Roman government and they were notorious for lining their own pockets with extra money that they snickered away from those who were their own people. Into that mix, Jesus also invited Simon The Zealot. Remember reading about Simon the Zealot. Do you know what the Zealots were? The Zealots were a guerrilla, a band of guerrilla warfare assassins in Jerusalem. It was the pledge of every Zealot that belonged to this group that you would you would assassinate Romans if you could find them off to the side, or you assassinate traitors who were loyal to Rome instead of Judaism. So, can, can you see that this is like oil and water? You got Matthew, who is a a traitor because he's working for the Roman government, and you have Simon who has sworn that he will kill any traitor who's working for the Roman government, and you put him in a group of 12 men. And Jesus made it work. They work side by side, shoulder to shoulder, both giving their lives for the Savior. Shouldn't we learn something out of that experience? Shouldn't we learn from that, that no matter who you are, where you come from, what your background is, that you may not agree with everybody that's in here, I may not agree with you when you come in, you may not agree with me, but in Christ we can be one, that he binds us together and brings us together in a way that we can work side by side and shoulder to shoulder, giving and investing our lives in the most important work in the world, even though we don't see things the same. What an incredible lesson Jesus gives us in the choosing of the twelve. And again, these were ordinary men. I like how Paul reminds us to get along with everybody in the body as ordinary people. He writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Our world will never know peace until we can show them the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And when you get to heaven, if you're here uh, today and you say, well, I I really don't have anything I can do in the kingdom. I'm just an ordinary person. You know, I don't have any talents. I'll just sit and watch. One of these days, you're going to get to heaven, and you're going to meet Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and, and, and Thaddeus. And what are you going to say? You're going to say, oh, I was just too ordinary. They're going to look at you and say, we were ordinary, and we changed the world what's our excuse? If they could do it, we can do it. God always works through the ordinary person because ordinary people let an extraordinary God work in their lives for extraordinary results. Minus Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, the rest of these men gave their lives and futures to establish the church for all ages. You know, I'm really glad that Jesus didn't pick a successor, a successor. I'm glad that he infused this this into 12 men, and here's why. You get one person who's the successor, and this one person does all of the writing, all of the teaching, all of the focusing. You know what you end up with? you got a lot of questions. Well, how do we know this person was really inspired by God? How do we know they, they told the story accurate? How do we know where they got the story to begin with? But if you've got 12 men who are preaching and teaching and writing and establishing the church, if Matthew gets out of line, you got Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Thomas to say, whoa, Matthew, you better come back. Do you hear what you just said? Did you see what you just wrote? The fact that there are 12 men who are working as a team to make this happen reaffirms in me this is not something to question its validity. These guys would have held it responsible. And here's the other thing. If the resurrection didn't happen and they all preached that it did and they knew that it was false, we know they would not have died for that. Maybe one, but not all of them. Because people don't die for what they know to be a lie. We are surrounded in history by these great men. And, and, and James, the brother of John, the fisherman, James is the first to die. We find of his death in the book of Acts. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred. I find it interesting that James is the first to die. John's the last to die. John's the only one of the apostles that was not martyred. He died of old age. He'd been banished to the Isle of Patmos at one time, a penal colony of the Romans, and and suffered there, but he didn't die a martyr's death. All the rest, all the rest died martyr's deaths along with James. We don't have their deaths recorded in Scripture, but we do have it in church history and tradition and legend. Can I just share what we think may have happened to these men? Andrew was crucified on a cross shaped like an X in the country of Greece. Bartholomew was flayed to death in Armenia. James, the son of Alphaeus, is buried in Spain as a martyr. Matthew was cut down by the sword in Ethiopia. Peter was crucified in Rome upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Philip was hanged on a pillar in Turkey. Simon the assassin was sawn in two in Egypt. Thaddeus was martyred in Armenia. Thomas was pierced with a lance in India. Matthias, the one that was chosen to take the place of Judas Iscariot, was both stoned and then beheaded in Turkey. And the great apostle Paul, who came into this role a little bit later, was beheaded in Rome. Every one of these men laying down their lives for what they believed and what they were passionate about. Since the birth of our country, I know of no sanctioned martyrdom for any Christian. When we walk out of here in just a few minutes, we'll go out those doors. I don't know any of us in this room that will walk out of these doors with fear that somebody is waiting there to cut us down because of our faith. I hope our country is always that way. But when we are not threatened, It is easy to trivialize our faith. I'm suggesting this morning that if these people and the hundreds of thousands in between them and us who have been martyred for their faith were willing to die for their faith, then shouldn't we be willing to live for our faith and live it in such a way that it makes a difference out in this world? Not that it's something casual, not that it's something frivolous, but to live it in such a way that we would be willing to lay down our lives should that day come. Those are the 12. Now, within this story of the 12, there is a vignette story that's just a chapter earlier that I want you to read You. This is one of my favorite stories of the apostles, too, and, and it's in Luke chapter 5, and this is what we read beginning in verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, it goes by all three names. With the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets, He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, now hang on to that word, we'll come back to it in a minute. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners, James and John, in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And so they pulled their boats up on the shore. Left everything and followed him. The unusual word master that Peter used here in this text is only found in the Gospel of Luke, and it is in reference to Jesus. It is a powerful word. It means one far greater. And and this this is important to note because Peter is a professional fisherman. Peter knows the Sea of Galilee like the back of his hand. He knows the odds of catching fish on the day after you've had a fruitless night because you always caught the fish at night. Fishing during the day was not a good thing to do, and so they, they haven't caught a thing all night. Why would you go out? But Master, nevertheless... I know all this. I'm the professional fisherman here. You're not. Master, I've seen you at work. I will do what you say. You see, more than a year ago, more than a year before this, Peter had followed Jesus after His baptism. He'd been a disciple of John the Baptist. He saw Jesus baptized. He watched Jesus cleanse the temple. He observed the event in Samaria where Jesus spoke with the woman at the well. He was an eyewitness to the healings that happened in Judea, and He was an eyewitness to the miracle at the wedding feast in Cain of Galilee when Jesus turned the water into wine. After nearly nine months of following Jesus, Peter had gone back to his family and his fishing business while Jesus went back home to teach in his home area. And a year or so, uh, you know, after his first meeting with Jesus, they were together again, reunited here at the sea. This is not their first brush with the master. They've seen him at work, but never in a powerful way like this. And Jesus makes this profound invitation to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Come. Just just follow me, and I'll take you from fishing for fish, and I'll make you fishers of men." It was a picture they could not escape. Now, I just want to give you two little thoughts before, before you go, okay? And here's the first one. The invitation is to us as well. God calls us to fish, or using the word fishing here as serving Him, He wants us to serve creatively. The word that Luke uses... That we translate, I will make you a fisher of men, is is not a word that really means that. You know, for us today, we think of fishing as a hobby. This was not an invitation to a new hobby for this guys. This was a life and death battle. As a matter of fact, the word that Luke uses here is a word that means to take alive those who are captive. I want to send you out to take alive those who are captive. We only find that word one other time in the in the scriptures. It's in 2 Timothy, and it's speaking of those who Satan has taken alive, the enemy, and holds them by the power of sin. And Jesus says, This is what I'm sending. You to do, to recapture the captives, to take them alive with me. These guys knew this was not going to be an easy journey. It was a life and death. Eternity weighed heavy in their hearts. It ought to weigh heavy in our hearts, and we should be as creative as we possibly can today in the spread of the gospel. You see, through the years… Ever since the apostles, the message has stayed the same, but the methods, the methods of communicating gospel must be fluid. Now, I doubt that there's a soul in the room this morning who would question what we preach. You preach the gospel, you preach what's in the Bible, but how we present, how we take the gospel, how we share it, that's got to have flexibility, and the part that so often bugs people is not the theology, it's the methodology. Especially if we don't like the methodology. But it's got to be fluid because every culture, every generation is slightly different. Culture has learned that. Industry has learned that. For the life of me, I don't think M&M's today taste any different than M&M's did when I was a kid. Would you agree? They taste the same. Right? Do you all eat M&M's? I I hope so. Yeah, yeah, they taste the same, right? When when I was a kid, we had, I think, five colors of M&M's. Today, you can find them in every color of the rainbow, depending on what holiday it is. The the, the candy makers have discovered it's not about the, the, the contents. They've got the recipe right, but they're marketing it, they're packaging it, their methods are fluid, and they know they'll sell more candy if they can put it into more colors at special times of the year. See? Pretty smart, huh? Wheaties. When I was a kid, Bart Starr was on a box of Wheaties. Bart Starr hadn't been on a box of Wheaties for a long time. Do you know why? Because he is not relevant to the sports community today. This past week, I got on the Team Wheaties website, this is a website I think where they're going to try and pick like the next picture to go onto the Wheaties box. I looked through the list of athletes. I didn't recognize one face. I didn't know one name among these new athletes that may go on the Wheaties box. Now, th- this is a great lesson for us. Wheaties isn't trying to appeal to me, okay? And, and they shouldn't. If by the time you get to my age, you haven't started eating Wheaties, you're probably not going to eat Wheaties in the future. They're not trying to reach me. They're trying to reach a younger generation that maybe is looking for a good cereal, and they're going to try and make sure that Wheaties is in their their camp. Now, here's the deal. The contents are the same. It's still the same soggy wheat cereal it's always been. (laughs) But the packaging… The packaging is altogether different. Now, why is it that our culture gets that and the church sometimes doesn't get that? We should be leading the charge in this area. We should be doing everything that we can within our power to make sure that the message is relevant to every generation, to every age and stage of life. I want the church strong for my grandchildren. I want it strong for your children and your grandchildren, for your lives because I'm there. You're there. But this new generation coming on, they're not there yet. And I want them to be as strong in their faith as the apostles who walked and talked with Jesus. That's been the heritage of our churches, the, our Christian churches throughout all these years. Going back to the 1800s, our fellowship of churches has always been keyed in on being biblically faithful. That's the contents. And culturally relevant, that's the packaging at the same time. Be faithful to the Word of God and be effective in the world God created. Paul put it this way. This is how the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law so as to win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel. Folks, that's one of the reasons we're going to the west side of town. It's not because I need another service. It's not because you need another service. But there are people here that may not come, people in our area that may come there, that won't come here, that will be reached by people there that aren't reached by people here. Because every possible way to reach out and make the gospel relevant is what we need to do. And you say, well, how, how can I be creative? Well, it's, it's easy. First of all, be yourself. Don't be phony or insincere. Be real. Just be yourself. God created you as you. Be yourself build relationships. Relationships is what's going to make the difference in the future. You you don't start with the gospel, you start with a friendship. All right, build relationships. Hospitality will be a key. Robert Weber notes that in a post-Christian world, and that's where we are, social networking will take place oftentimes in the home first. you'll, You'll move from your devices into a home long before you'll darken the door of a church, because if they get to know you in your home, if they get to trust you there, then they will trust you here. And then just tell your story. Everybody's got a story. You don't have to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers, but you do have a story. What has Christ done and meant in your life? Don't you think Peter told his story over and over and over again? Dion Sanders, the only athlete to play in both the Super Bowl and the World Series, the only athlete I know of who in a major league baseball game hit a home run and That same week, in an NFL game, scored a touchdown. Only guy said this. A few years ago, he made this comment. He said, no touchdown, no home run, no stolen base, no tackle, no interception can compare to me leading someone to Christ. Nothing comes close. I'm telling you, helping somebody else find Jesus Christ that changes their eternity is one of the greatest thrills of life. Get creative in your service. Fill your net with those who need to know Jesus. And then here's the last thing, serve committedly. Just this week, Mark Kincaid shared with me an observation that came from a sermon he had recently heard. I I don't know who was preaching, he didn't tell me that. But the remark goes something like this. He says, it is impossible to find contentment in the pew doing nothing once you have tasted purpose in serving Christ. If you come and sit and watch and you find contentment in that, May I suggest that you really don't know contentment. Contentment doesn't come from doing nothing. It comes from having purpose in serving Jesus. You see, once you've taken hold of the net, don't ever let it go. Once you've started a journey with Jesus Christ, don't ever turn back. Once you've acknowledged Him as Lord and Savior, don't go looking for somebody greater because there is no one greater. He is the Lord of Lords, the Master of Of masters. A Christian prisoner in Cuba was asked to sign a statement containing charges against fellow Christians that would lead to their arrest, and he told the communist officer, he said, The chains keep me from signing this, you know. And the officer said, You're not in chains. To which the Christian replied, Oh, but I am. I am bound by the chain of witnesses who throughout the centuries gave their lives for Jesus Christ. I am a link in this chain and I will not break it. The apostles created a strong chain of faith that never broke that chain. It has survived through these last 2,000 years intact and we folks, we Folks from Sherwood Oaks this morning, we are a link in that chain, and we dare not, we dare not break that chain because future generations depend on whether or not we will faithfully serve, committedly serve, creatively serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.